0: Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly podcast. Before we start today's show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Thanks to our friends at Beer52, UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash Wisdom and just cover the £4.95 postage fee and the eight beers will be delivered to your doorstep. As well as the beers, you get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal. They send subscribers a crate of beer every month, and there's a different theme each month. You're able to pause or cancel your subscription at any time. Uh, we have them delivered to our office back in the days where you could go into an office, and it's genuinely a fantastic deal. Anyway, on with the show. I just want to stop you there, Yaz. Cool? Yeah.
2: I just want to stop you there. Um... I've got a bone to pick with you and Ben. You stole my beers. <laughs> you stole my beer, fifty-two beers, didn't you? Come, come, the end, come the end of, of days in our office as we were all legging it for the Chinook outside. Uh, you, you stole all of my beers, all of my beautiful beer, fifty-two beers. And you know how much I love a beer. So
0: we were worried uh, I that have that a they were going to go off. We were worried they we were going to go off. We don't know when we will be back in the office. So we were doing the. Responsible I was in the thing. office that afternoon. It, opened the it, it fridge and bit, they were gone but I, th- I feel
1: like yaz and i needed it at that stage it was quite a uh, it would have been a depressing monday sort of evening slash night if we hadn't had something to take home with us we realized we weren't going to see each other apart from on podcast skype calls for about who knows how long so
2: <laughs> when we get to the other side you both owe me lots of beer okay deal okay
0: anyway on with the show good um right there's not show. been any cricket on this week, but we do have plenty to talk about. Later in the show, we've got a wonderful little interview that Joe did with Ian Bell about his 4 for 4 that we talked about last week and also how he um, is uh, dealing with self-isolation with his family. Um, and we'll also hear from Kinetic Cricket and former England Lions wicketkeeper Ben Scott on how to keep fit from home. With me today to talk... All that is magazine editor of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly Magazine, Joe Harmon, the managing editor at Wisdom.com, Ben Garner, and the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly Magazine, Phil Walker. Lots of editors. Joe, week two of the lockdown, the great lockdown, how are you faring?
4: Uh, I'm doing all right, I guess. I think I, I feel like I'm sort of settling into a, a routine of sorts, going for a run each evening to keep myself sane. Uh, just bought a skipping rope, actually, um, to keep myself fit and entertained over the coming weeks. Um, But, you know, it is what it is. Just got to crack on with it as best we can. Do you want to hear
0: my uh, new isolation hobby that I picked up? Very much so. So, Joss Butler features in his wife's Pilates videos every day at 12.30 on her Instagram page. And initially, I thought it was just quite funny because on the first time they did it, Joss Butler was doing it in full England whites and his batting gear as well, helmet, pads, gloves, the lot. And initially, I found it quite funny uh, and then having watched a couple of them, I was like, right, I might, might get involved. And having Joss Butler encouraging you through your phone is um, quite empowering. Um, <laughs> so that's my, so that's, my, that's my great lockdown hobby. Any more, Ben? I'm sure you've got something odd that you picked up. Uh,
1: no, I mean, I just find it interesting how you, uh, how you get to know your housemates so much better when you have to spend every waking moment with them. Like, it turns out one of my housemates is Thailand's, like, best ever freediver. She holds the national record in four different disciplines in freediving. I just had no idea. Uh, uh, so yeah, that that's what I've learned. Did you not week. really talk
4: pre pre lockdown?
1: We did. I guess it just didn't come up. Like I knew she enjoyed free diving. Uh I shouldn't know quite how good she was at it until uh we would I guess we we were having like breath holding competitions, which she instigated and obviously won uh <laughs> so, and that's how it sort of came up that she was not just quite good at holding her breath but, but na- na- nationally good at it I guess <laughs> well. Has she got a
0: Wikipedia page?
1: Uh, you know what? I haven't looked that up uh, I should do I'll report back next week on that
0: Lovely uh, look, look forward to it um, the, the biggest thing we're doing on today's show is we're picking a team of the best players to have played a maximum of 20 tests since 1990 Players who haven't retired yet or have played more than 20 tests over their career do not count, but if you haven't played a test for the last two years, you are eligible for selection. We nearly killed each other coming up with the criteria for this over WhatsApp, so this better be <laughs> worth it. All happy with the criteria now? Broadly. Uh, ben, do you want to kick us off? Who's opening the batting for your team?
1: Uh, we're going to go with uh, Phil, Phil Jakes and, uh, and Peter Kirsten for me. That, that's, that's who I've got. I mean... I found openers the hardest to choose in this because for me, this team is about players who sort of like burned bright and burned briefly and openers often don't really burn at all. they kind of like smolder in the background, you know? Like... <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> but, but but I guess Phil Jakes, I mean, there are so many Aussies that could make this team. I mean, you've got your your Stuart Laws, your Martin Loves, your Michael Bevans, your Brad Hodges. uh and Phil Dick's actually had one of the longer careers out of that sort of generation of players who were really, really good, but not good enough to get into probably the greatest team of all time. Uh, but he opened the batting, so that's that's why he gets into my team. And Peter Kirsten, I guess, is he's the only one I've got of this sort of this lost South African era during a different sort of uh, isolation.
0: when. Uh, so this is Gary's half-brother? Yes,
1: yeah. Older brother. He's so 37 by the time he made his test debut, but still averaged 30, got 100, but... You imagine if he I think what, fifty seven first class hundreds? So I think if he had played more test cricket, he would have probably got quite a lot more. It doesn't set the pulses as racing the opening pair.
4: I mean you are you're you're cheating a bit there, because uh, he wasn't really an opener, but I've also put him as an opener, so I, I can't really yeah. complain too much on that. I mean he was a he was a middle order batsman. He did he bat, he opened in his last test match against England, but he was he was very much a, a middle-order batsman. But there's a lot of really good middle order batsmen to pack in here, so I've I've done the same cheat effectively.
1: Rob Key was the other I considered but I guess he's unfulfilled in a way in that he was around at a time when England had were well stocked with batting talent but in a way even if Rob Key had played 50 tests as he might have in another era I think we probably sort of know that he'd have averaged about 38 and got like six or seven test hundreds you know like I, I feel like there's there's not almost a mystery to Rob Key's test career in the way there might be with uh with Peter Kistens and and, and Phil Jonathan
0: Liu wrote in the magazine a while back, did he talk about the copper generation or the bronze generation? Basically, the players who were the, a similar age to Bell, Trot, Peterson, Collingwood, etc., who had very, very good careers domestically, but never really got the opportunity to showcase that at in the international stage. There is a, a what-if for a lot of those players, particularly considering England's top-order p- problems since those guys have retired. Is it feasible that Rob Key would have been a... A player that played a hundred Test England if he was born ten years later.
4: Yeah, and I think Ravi Bapara probably falls into that category as well, being around at a time when there was a lot of very good English middle-order batsmen, and and his record. I mean, he scored three hundreds in thirteen Tests, so I mean, he he showed that he could do it. All be against a weaker was West Indies, wasn't it? He scored those hundreds against. Just quickly on Kirsten as well. I think it's he's probably underestimated in just how good he was. I spoke to. Jeff Miller. Recently, we asked him to pick his his greatest Derbyshire eleven of all time. Kirsten spent quite a few years at Derbyshire when he obviously couldn't play international cricket. Uh, Derbyshire brought him Alan Lamb and Garth LaRue over on trial. They played second eleven cricket for Derbyshire for a year, and then they had to decide at the end which one they were going to go for. Um, obviously, all would have been great picks. They went for. Peter Kirsten, who, who went on to score a huge amount of runs for Derbyshire. Uh, and uh, Jeff Miller said he was known in the Derbyshire dressing room as the, the modern-day Bradman. Said he said there's no, no doubt he would have been a hugely successful test batsman had he got the opportunity.
1: I've just realised there's someone I'd completely forgotten. I've got a list of candidates of about 70. And I forgot Ed Joyce this whole time, who I think could be a very viable candidate to over the batting in this team.
0: Well, his first-class record was brilliant. His first-class numbers were brilliant. Averaged nearly 50 over a very long period of time. Obviously, he only got to play one test in the end, but yeah, it's a fair shout. Phil, what do you think about Ed Joyce?
2: Uh, stylist, classy. Um, I don't think he breaks that top two, though. Uh, Phil, Phil Jakes made 300s in, in uh, 11 games, an average 48 in first-class cricket all over the world. Um, so I think he's a stick-on, and he made loads of runs for Yorkshire as well in, in English conditions, as well as consistent runs in Australia. And Peter Kirsten, as everybody said, I mean, I've got those two opening the batting as well. Peter Kirsten was would have been, well, was one of the preeminent players of the day. He just was unable, obviously, to play to play Test cricket. But even coming into the side in the in the back end of his career, he was still the top run scorer in the '92 World Cup as well against some good attacks. When one day cricket was more closely aligned, anyway, with Test cricket uh, than it is now. So I don't think really those two can be can be breached um ed joyce is is a lovely kind of hipster's choice and i and i get where ben's coming from he was lethal in county cricket as well right through into his mid to late 30s but um it's difficult to make a call um for for ed joyce um over and above those two players i think
0: so it seems like we're in agreement that jakes and Curson are our openers joe you went for someone else but i think we'll save him for the middle order discussion sure i think that's fair okay so number three you guys all agreed on this guy. I didn't actually ask you to pick a captain, but Joe picked this guy as captain. So Joe you you went for Stuart Law at number 3 and captain.
4: Yeah, well Stuart Law hasn't even got a test average because he only he only batted once in test cricket. Um, scored 54 in his only test innings against Sri Lanka at the Wacker in 95. Never played again. Scored nearly 30,000 first class runs, a huge amount of those were in in this country for for Essex and then later Lancashire. Um I know a lot of Queenslanders just can't figure out why Stuart Law didn't play more Test cricket. Um, There's definitely a feeling that there's a kind of anti-Queensland bias around that time. Stuart Law has spoken about this as well. Perhaps he was a slightly kind of confrontational character. I don't know if that counted against him at certain points in his career as well. Um, and also, obviously, that was a, a an extremely good Australian side around that time. Um, arguably the best that's ever played test cricket. So it was an uphill battle to get in, but it, it really goes to show the strength of that Australian side that a player of Stuart Law's ability played one test innings in his whole career. I saw him,
2: obviously, quite a lot growing up close to the Chelmsford uh, ground where he was so lethal for Essex for so long. Um, it, it, at that time, in the... From ninety five through to 98, ninety eight nine, he was the best batsman in England, um, in and out of the Test side, and that was he was he became this kind of uh, lightning rod for just how far advanced Australia were from England at the time that he couldn't get in their side, and yet he would be the best batsman in the England Test side. I don't think there would have been any doubt about that at the time. There's something else to add about Stuart Law. It's not just the record, um, and he averages fifty odd. I think it's fifty and a half in first class cricket. It was seventy something, seventy-nine hundreds, I think it is. But it was the way that he did it as well. Um, just like Ponting felt ahead of his time. Uh, so so Stuart Law fits into that category as well. There were a lot of similarities technically with the way that the two of them played. They were both front foot players with the ability to rock back on the on the back foot and punish the short ball as well. He he kind of he was one of the earlier players to cock his wrists and to have the back. The, the toe of the bat pointing towards the skies. He was, he was an early forerunner for the kind of techniques that you now see as standard in, in, the, in the modern game. Um, and he could, he could dominate anybody at any time. Um, I saw him at Lord's in one of the NatWest finals for Essex make an 80-odd not out against Alan Donald um, when he was bowling for Warwickshire and obviously coming in down the hill, giving it everything he had for 10 overs. And that was an incredible confrontation between the two of them. Um, and, and Law Law strolled it He was playing a different game to everybody else He was a phenomenal talent Really, really was um, And as I say, would have been England's best player If he'd happened to have been born over here
0: as, as good as Australia were though, Phil Do you think that he should have got more opportunities then? Was that something that a lot of people thought at the time? Australia were amazing But still, was he unlucky to be behind? Greg, Greg Blewett played 43 Test matches Had a very similar career span to Law Damien Martin had a great test career as well, but struggled early on. Sure. Um, should Law have got more opportunities?
2: Well, undoubtedly, he was a better all-round, play- all-round player than Blewett. He was a better first-class player than, say, Michael Bevan, who got 20-odd test matches. Um, there were a lot of players who had a, who had a go. Um, Matthew Elliott was a good player. He played 20-odd test matches as well. But the thing with Law, he played a fair few ODIs. I think he played 54 ODIs. Um, and although he made that 100 in the World Cup in 95-6... He didn't really do much else elsewhere. And if he'd had a slightly more fruitful one-day career, then I think that would have maybe pushed his test credentials a bit further down the line. Um, but in, if you're talking about luck, uh, then he's he's up there with the most unlucky batsman uh, cricketers of the modern era, without a doubt.
1: Well, I, I was going to say, uh, Michael Bevan, I think it's quite easy to discount his ability in, in first-class cricket because he was such a... Like a, a preeminent one day player and kind of like a forerunner to the finisher that we have quite and a and also of cause now. he couldn't play
2: the short ball but yeah sure but you can play the short but, ball but
1: he's it just just that he's, he's, he's fourth out. on the list of Sheffield Shield all-time run scorers and it's a uh, sort of uh, interesting that you couldn't crack test cricket he was he was close to making my team but I, yeah i mean just shouldn't be should be uh, dismissed out of hand i would say
2: he, he he was considered to be you know the new bradman when he was 18 19 20 odd michael Bevan. Phenomenal talent, obviously phenomenal ball striker. Uh, but Devon Malcolm kind of sort, sorted him out. I think it was the '94 five Ashes Ashes tour down there in Australia, and 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 Malcolm just kept peppering him, and he didn't really have an answer for it. I think realistically, he would have had a good Test career, Bevan. He would have probably sorted it out. There was enough ability there and big match temperament. But Law was the full package. I think Law Law could play all bowling in all conditions. Um, he was just a victim of timing and circumstance.
0: Joe, you did pick Bevan in your team. What do you what do you say to that?
4: Yeah, I did. I mean, I know, I know the. It was, I can just about remember him watching him play a Test cricket. I obviously saw him play a lot more in one-day cricket. I know there was the the story that he couldn't play the short ball, and I, I, I don't remember personally seeing Malcolm doing him doing him over like that. But you don't have that record in Australian first-class cricket if you just can't play the short ball. So, I, as Phil said at the end there. I reckon, given more opportunity, he'd have turned it around, had a very successful Test career. Um, so, yeah, he, he picks in, fits into my kind of packed middle order.
2: What was his average in Test cricket? 29.
4: 29. From,
2: from eight, how many games? From
4: 18 Tests.
2: Yeah. I mean, considering how strong they were at the time, it's a little wonder that he didn't, didn't carry on from there, really, because you, you can't play 18 games and average under 30 in, in that Australian side at that time.
1: We, we could almost, This team could almost just be Australians, couldn't it, really? Like the... Have we, said, have we even mentioned Martin Love yet? I mean uh he he'd get in would, would have got in most test teams around the world at that time. Yeah. Um yeah. Brad Hodge. A, an incredible. Another. Darren Lehman yeah, yeah, Brad yes.
0: Yeah. Darren Lehman uh narrowly misses out on criteria, but another one with a phenomenal first class record. Um there's another middle order batsman that you all picked. Vinod Cambly, um, a man who retired with a higher test match average than Sapchin Tendulkar. <laughs> um what, what what went wrong? What went wrong with him? He was then? known as a
4: bit of a wild child, wasn't he? I think that was certainly the reputation he had. I mean, he made an astonishing start to his test career. I don't have the stats here, but I know he scored a couple of test hundreds, uh, really early doors. Um, but I think it was it seemed to be as much personality as anything else that counted against him, that he wasn't seen didn't seem to have the right attitude for, for test cricket. Phil, you, you remember better than me of that time. Is that fair? Um, yes, up to a point. And he was the kind of... A, like the
2: yin to Sachin's yang and all of that, and, and he became diminished because he was al- always paired alongside Tendulkar. Um, he made a brilliant 220-odd against England, I think at Mumbai, um, in the third Test match of the 93 um, series, which England lost 3-0, and announced himself um, in that innings, then made another double very quickly after that, I think against Zimbabwe. But what happened thereafter... Um, and it doesn't really enter into the story that much of him but um he he played a couple of games against the west indies and and they they went in short against him as well and because he was a dasher and because he grew up on slow low turning indian pitches he struggled a little bit against the short ball um and and i think india india selectors at the time took a view that he was more trouble than he was worth and and that perhaps that explosion at the first part of his career would not—it was not going to be replicated down the line. Um, that coupled with his character, with his um, with his love of a gold chain and an earring and a night out and all that sort of stuff—it wasn't really what Indian cricket was requiring at the time. Indian cricket at that time was was struggling. Really, it was it was a, a below average Test side. They would habitually lose away from home, and there was a feeling I think with Cambly that while he would be he would have his day in, in, on Indian pitches. He would struggle away from home. Um, there wasn't much feet movement there. He would throw his hands at the wide one and so on. Um, and maybe the thinking was, you know, if we're going to go and be a proper side, you've got to go and win in England. You've got to go and win in, in South Africa. And, and so they took a view on him. He, 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 he's become this kind of ultimate hipster story, hasn't he, Vinod Cambly? Um, none of us could resist putting him in this team. He has this kind of legendary average... Uh, and the story's sort of been burnished over the years, with Tendulkar going one way and this this character going the other. Hospitalised for potential sort of chest problems, in and out of sort of courtrooms, issues around his around how trustworthy he is this, that, and the other. Um, an irresistible story. Um, I don't think he was probably quite as good as the as the numbers suggest, or else they'd have pragmatically stuck with him.
1: Yeah, I just put two two de- details in the can be thing firstly him and tendulka shared that world record stand as, as school children when he was age 17 to put on 600 or something mm. at that point i think they were both earmarked marked out and obviously one goes on and, and the other doesn't and then just the, the the stats in those in those tests in the first seven tests it was two double hundreds and two hundreds and then nothing thereafter and all done by the age of uh, by the age of 24 and also he had the do you know about the thing with the back grips yeah he the, was obsessed uh, with them wasn't he he had nine of them on his bat handle at one point. Is that right? Because he wanted his uh, his bat handle to be as wide as possible, which is a, like, a bizarre reason. Like, it seems like such a minor reason to play a part in like a downfall of a potentially great cricketer. He must but... have been
2: reading Sigmund Freud, I think, at the time.
0: Well, it seems like we have a settled top four, Kirsten, Jakes, Law and Cambly. This is where there's a bit of difference between the teams. Ben, who, who would you next have in the middle order? Uh,
1: at five... Well, I mean, the player I most want to have isn't the player I'd have at five. So I'll go for the player I most want. Is that right? Yeah, that's fine. So I'd go for uh, Je- Jesse Ryder would be my next one. Um, probably about as, as talented a ball striker as, as New Zealand have ever had. Obviously, bro- broke some records in in one day cricket. Seemed uh, got got a double hundred in Test cricket. seems set to kind of, well, it, it, from a talent point of view and a skill point of view, seems set to sort of go on and be kind of at like the heart of that team. But just. Uh, a variety of, of off-field misdemeanors. My middle order that I've picked is a very bad boy middle order, which I think is a the way to go with this thing. But yeah, so, I, I mean, so many facets of the Jesse Ryder story, a bit like with the Cambly story, that just like, a, that they, some cricketers that like events just kind of coalesce around, like a, like get, getting knocked out in a bar brawl and having to fear for his life and, uh, and just, just sort of lots of little details that seem to, uh, like, just... just mean he didn't play for as long as he could have done but uh, a phenomenal talent for me no one else go for jesse
0: no joe joe you went for jesse wider as well
4: yeah he was a gimme for me i mean he he was a personal favorite um i always loved watching him back he kind of reminded me of of just watching kind of a club cricketer go out and the way he played was so carefree um whereas off the field it was obviously a very different story he was a very troubled bloke um had a difficult upbringing um, even though it was only a few years ago, his troubles, I kind of think if, if he was going through now what he did then, people would probably be a bit more of an understanding about it. I think it was almost seen as a bit of a joke that he was just a, a pisshead, but obviously there was, there was underlying reasons for that, and it's a great shame that he, he's been lost to the game. I mean, New Zealand can ill afford, given the small t- pool of players they have, to, to lose players like Ryder. Um, scored three Test hundreds, I think all against India. I remember watching a brilliant double hundred against India at Napier, I think it was, Um, where he just batted so, so well. He was such a good player. Um, But then I think New Zealand decided to go this way where, I mean, Brendan McCullum said it was a no dickhead policy. And I I don't know if you meant that specifically about Ryder, but it obviously meant none of the nonsense that comes off the field, none of the big, none of the personality clashes. We're just going to get guys who concentrate on their cricket and and Ryder kind of fell victim to that. And you, you can't blame... McCullum for that policy and obviously it, it's worked very well and been celebrated by um not just New Zealand fans but fans around the world um but it is a great great shame that Ryder never got to to play more Test cricket for New Zealand's
0: Phil you didn't pick Ryder in your team but you you happy with his potential selection
4: uh, I'm I'm not
2: gonna I'm not gonna argue against Jesse lovable great to watch on his day um th- if this is my team I'm gonna have to try and manage them um, and I've already got Cambly in the middle order anyway, uh, and I've got Ravi at six, who needs a little bit of an arm around the shoulder as well. I can do without Jesse mucking up my my well ordered plans on the morning of the match either. So I'm fine for him in my team, but uh, I've gone for the pragmatic choice at number five for me. Um, I've gone for Murray Goodwin, a nice solid kind of respectable, uh, the kind of bloke that you wouldn't mind sort of sharing a sharing a nice. A nice, you know, crescent with, you know, in middle class Australia where he played a lot of his cricket. And a nice solid kind of bloke, but an outstanding player in Australia and in England for Sussex. And, of course, he made his runs for Zimbabwe, his birthplace. Uh, He came late to the game in Zimbabwe because he'd been playing in Australia predominantly. But from 19 test matches, he averaged, averaged 43 with 300s in there, To Two good ones as well. One against a good Pakistani attack, really good Pakistani attack, and one against England, 140-odd, not out, against an England side at the time. Um, he made runs against Australia as well. Um, he made a good 90 against them, having been run out first ball in the first innings. Um, and all around the world he made top-quality runs. I think he averaged, I've got it here, 47 from 300-plus 300 games, 320 games for an average of 47, with seventy-one seventy-one hundreds. 71 hundreds in first-class cricket. Um, yeah, fine, fine player. So he's, he's my rock at number five for what it's worth.
0: And also, w- one aspect of this team is kind of a career not being 100% fulfilled at international level. And Phil, you mentioned he started late. He also finished early as well. So the reason why he only played 18 Test matches was because his wife wasn't settling in Zimbabwe. So Goodwin left Zimbabwe only two years after he started his international career. So that is someone who feasibly could have played Another three, four years of good test cricket, while Zimbabwe was still a mainstay on the test-cricketing map. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, indeed. And, and that was the era, This you're talking from 1998 to 2000 he played, and this was the era uh, when Zimbabwe were briefly um, a formidable side. And, and they had, you know, the Flower Brothers, of course. Alistair Campbell was in there. Neil Johnson was an excellent all-round cricketer who actually I considered in this side, although his first-class record wasn't quite good enough. But with he streak as well leading the bowling side side of things, they had a proper good side really. But then, of course, it dismantled um, soon after that. And I think perhaps Goodwin got a sense of the prevailing wind and and got out before it became uh, untenable really. And as you say, you know, signed signed to to play domestic cricket in in England and Australia and did it very very well. But there's a lot of players from that era from that Zimbabwe side who you could conceivably discuss in this context because. If you're talking about unfulfilled talents at, on the, at the top level, then Zimbabwe is almost a byword for that.
0: Okay, so we, we basically need to pick one more specialist middle-order batsman at number five. At number six, we could either have another specialist middle-order batsman or an all-rounder, up to you guys. Anyone else want to pitch a number five batsman?
1: Yeah, I've got, um, I've got Umar Akmal in my team. Don't be silly. Um, <laughs> no i i i personally feel that um well from how talented he was is one of the i mean one of the great lost talents of, of his generation i think like uh just thinking back to that first test hundred he got against New zealand in new zealand uh i think it was 120 odd when uh um uh were five down for not many against a bowler who i think we probably all have in our teams um in a, in a game they lost by 30 runs just it's just a, a, a classic knockery really like a proper counter-attacking innings and he could he could he could play the, the the swimming ball he could drive the swimming ball is what I remember and uh seemed like a player who kind of had it all in front of him and then as we all know with the many many off-field misdemeanors I mean if you're going for a a team that would work cohesively mine is definitely not that uh, and I've specifically almost gone for players who who had a uh, incident filled lives as well as a uh, uh as well as being talented, and that being the reason. Um, but yeah, I think from a pure cricketing talent point of view, Umar Akmal is, is up there for you, me. You'd I'm really gonna, need to um, crack
4: the whip with this side, Ben, and, and in the nicest way possible, I'm not sure you've got it in you to, uh, to keep these characters in check.
1: <laughs> Stuart Law would, though. Stuart Law is captain. <laughs> also, I didn't know this was a scoundrels 11. <laughs> I didn't, I
2: thought and, that I didn't know that podcast. was the criteria.
1: Well, That's actually what turned me against Murray Goodwin. Like, Although he's unfulfilled from one point of view, he's almost just too fulfilled. Like, Just having a nice, content, happy family life in England didn't seem to me a good enough reason to give up on a Test cricket career.
2: Right, well, there you have it. Uh, Are we going to discuss Ravinda Bapara or what? Are are we going to have this discussion or am I the only person? Am I just going to be talking into the void as ever?
0: I haven't picked a team, but he would would 100% be in my team. Phil, you're the only person to pick Bapara.
2: I just feel with Ravi that um, 13 test matches is not enough to, to know the truth about his, his talent and his aptitude to play at that level we know that he made 300s against the West Indies some would say they were cheap hundreds some would say that they, they were so impressive that they persuaded the likes of um, uh, Andy Flower and, and Andrew Strauss was Strauss in charge in 2009? yes he was wasn't he? Help me out. Yeah. yeah, of course he was. He was, he, yeah. he persuaded those two, you know, outstanding cricket minds to bat him at three against Australia um, in an Ashes series. So, th- so they must have had some effect, those innings. Um, as it was, he probably wasn't a number three. He was probably never a number three. He played four test matches against Australia for, for a higher score of 35, I think it was. Clearly a failure of, a, of an experiment, without a doubt, but... Um, I think he was shunted into a position that he'd never really played before. He, since then, he's never really batted in the top three for, for Essex. He's a number four, five, six. That's, that's his game. He made those hundreds, he made that first hundred against West Indies at six. Um, and for me, he would be m- the perfect number five, six in a side like this. Um, I have no doubt that he would have he had a reasonably successful Test career. I think he would have been in and out of form. But then, who wasn't at that time? Um, I think he would, have, he would have offered something to that Test side over the, over the few years. And you've got to remember, he was only 23-24 as well when he played those games. Uh, I think he would have had an effect in Test cricket, but alas, it was never to be. Um, and he's probably got Jonathan Trott to thank for that, because it was Trott who came in in that O nine 9 game, of course, and, and settled in in a matter of minutes. But yeah, Ravi's the great lost talent, I think, in, in English test cricket uh, story over the last 20 years.
0: I, I 100% agree. So a few a few things over Parra. Um, I actually don't know exactly what happened, so maybe you guys can help me out on this. So number one, he didn't actually do that badly in the Ashes. He basically got a start in every test other than the, 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 the last test before he got dropped. Considering he wasn't really number three, that's quite impressive. And then he only ever played three tests after that, two in 2011, Mm. Uh, and won in 2012. And he did all right in one of them. Uh, he got 44 not out. And then didn't play for a year. Then played one test um, against Africa at the end of the summer. And then didn't play ever again. After Collingwood went at the end of the 10-11 Ashes, why did Bopar not get the chance to nail down that spot at six? Because that was, as Phil, you said, that was the natural spot for him to, to, to fit into the side.
4: The thing thing with Ravi compared to, say, Collingwoods or Trott before that, he's never absolutely torn it up in county cricket in a first-class season. I don't think he's ever scored a 1,000 runs in a season, which for a player of his talent is, is ridiculous. And that's why we can say he's a lost talent, and I absolutely agree, but I don't think there's enough evidence to suggest he'd have had a sparkling test career. For me, it's, from a mindset point of view, he's always seemed more suited to limited overs cricket and had a, a really, really strong England ODI career, which perhaps got gets overlooked a bit because England weren't necessarily the best 50-over side at that time.
2: Uh, I'd I just chime in there, and I don't disagree with that. Um, I think England sensed a flimsiness, a mental flimsiness to Ravi, uh, a fragility there, that at that time, as they were trying to become the best team in the world, and of course they did manage that within a year or two after that, they probably felt that the utility player role uh, the, the, the kind of the, the jack-of-all-trades role would be better filled by someone like Collingwood who was always going to eke out the most of his ability rather than someone like Ravi who always had the sense of being a kind of doomed, beautiful dasher-type type character. There was one particular instance. When, when he made those three ducks in a row, it was in Sri Lanka on a bad tour for England. And one of them was kind of comically bad. He managed to get himself run out um, and it was just dozy, and there was there there was that sense around Ravi at the time that he was almost too lovably laid back for his own good, for what England were looking for at that time. They were trying to move away um, from the kind of the, the Flintoff years, if you like, and move to a war, to a more sort of sturdy, battle hardened kind of group. Um, and and he was he was the unlucky one. I mean, it, again, it's said before the legend of that era is that everybody in the top six averaged at least 40 odd for England that's unheard of when you look at what what the story of the last two or three years in test cricket and um, I would add on joe's point about the, the lack of runs in county cricket I think that's related to the personality rather than the talent I think I think once Ravi realized that the the the, the glory days were over that the, the test cricket side of things was done I don't think he had the, the wherewithal or the temperament to go out there and churn out runs week after week for Essex. There were things going on behind the scenes. There were personal problems that he had to deal with and so on and so on. And I think as he moved through his career, that sort of real gritty determination to get it over the line in county cricket day after day in front of nobody... I just don't think he would have had that in him. But I don't think that was necessarily a reflection of of his ability.
1: Yeah, the other thing for me is that as much as Papara's career, when he was properly informed, coincided with that proper golden crop of English batsmen in the late 2000s, early 2010s, when he might have made a comeback was also when there was what looked like another kind of golden generation of batting talent that kind of, for one reason or another, has been partly fulfilled. So, I mean, if you look, Owen Morgan was batting at six, I think, in that 2011 summer when he might otherwise have gotten a chance and uh that didn't quite work out but you can obviously see why england tried that and then in 2012 it was johnny Bairstow and james taylor who when they were coming to side both looked like they might be potential players who'd average 50 in test cricket and then joe root that winter so i think that that generation came along also at just the wrong time for for, for ravi as well so i think that, there, I, I, that there's a case we made i i, I he again. He wouldn't quite make my team, but was was really. So, who, close. who are we going for so, yeah. at number six then? Well, sorry, the the, the the one other player that I I think I might have actually picked a top seven accidentally, uh, but Ben Hollyoke was the one that um, was one that I had in in my team. Uh, who I, I mean, I guess I guess the tragedies will, will probably never quite know how good he was. Well, we will never quite know how good he was, but um, from from the clips I've seen on on YouTube and the and the way he's talked about, seemed like he could have been possibly, uh, I mean, he, he was one of the more realistic next, uh, next Bothams, I guess. Um, the the tragedy is that the sample
2: get. size is so small. It's, it's, it's hard to make a call, isn't it? Um, those who knew him well, those who saw him develop, truly believe, and they would back you up here, Ben, they truly believe that he would have been a superstar. The, the, the genuine human tragedy of it is that we'll never know. Um, uh, obviously he played in 97, played a played a test match there, came in. Uh, clearly wasn't yet quite ready for that level of, of cricket. It was an Ashes test match on debut as well. But um, yeah, it's one of the great tragic unknowns of, of English cricket. Uh, what that talent, what that singular talent could have become. Um, more, more, more immediately in that sort of all-rounder role, I went with Andre Russell. I just think the modern game with him at seven or eight bowling 90 mile an hour as a partnership breaker i think if he'd had the body and more more centrally the mind to be to be moved by test cricket and also the pitches as well i mean it must be a luckless job thankless task bowling bowling quick into the pitch in west indies then i think he would have become an interesting test match cricketer so i'll throw him into the mix as well
0: we've, we've got a top five of kirsten jakes law camley Ryder. we need a we need a six, so this is the all-rounder spot, basically. Yeah, so
4: my number six. We talked about having a bunch of Aussies to choose from. I've I've gone with an Aussie all-rounder at six in in Tom Moody, uh, who's a kind of he's a batting all-rounder in that in that position. Um, he played a, what I think he played. Got the record, got it here. Eight Test matches, I think it was. Yeah, eight Test matches between 1989 and 1992. Scored two hundreds and averaged 33. Two wickets at 74 perhaps indicates why he didn't play more test cricket but as I say he'd be a batting all-rounder in this in this side I mean he was a brilliant brilliant player for Worcestershire for for many years um scored huge amounts of runs every every season um has gone on to be a a kind of very highly thought of coach as well he's got an excellent cricket brain clearly uh and I think would do a a really good role it perform a really good role in in this side
1: well I, I find the Andre Russell thing intriguing because also as well as the reasons Phil mentioned there's the sort of the discord in West Indies cricket that had its effect on his on his career I guess um and which might have also led to him playing playing more test cricket and I don't think there was any lack of love from him for the Caribbean is is the is the main thing and I think that I'd almost like to include him just to just to signify that because I remember during the World Cup he was getting some stick during the during the Bangladesh defeat when he was staying on the field despite being clearly not fit um, and was like not really able to chase after the ball, but would uh, uh, was clearly doing it just because he knew that kind of one over from him at full pace could turn a game that was headed away from West Indies towards them, and putting his body basically through hell just for the sake of of that of that national cause. And so I like I'm quite I'm quite fond of him as a cricketer and think that I agree that in a in a side that could kind of afford to include him, he could have been a really really devastating test cricketer. And I don't think West Indies were that for a. A few reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I, I could be tempted by, by Andre Russell at. But w- w- could he be a six, though? That's the question, I guess. I mean, that's a bit Too
2: high at six. Too high at six. Got to be.
0: You've got to have your keeper in as well at seven. You can't really have your keeper at eight. Yeah. I, don't know, I just looked at Tom Moody's first class numbers. They are, they are phenomenal. He averages, averages 46, 47 with the bat, 30 with the ball. I think that's, that's pretty compelling for a batting around the spot, a number six. Um, I, I, think,
5: I think
2: if Moody is, is playing 60 test matches And Bapara is playing 60 test matches I think Moody is going to be the, the, the safer bet overall I can get with yeah, that entirely cool.
0: And moving on to our gloveman You all picked the same, same guy, James Foster um, I hadn't realised how young he was when he played his last test Which he was only 22 when he played his last Test match, and he went on to have a. He went on after his Test career to have a brilliant first-class career with both bat and and the gloves. And I remember when he retired from first-class cricket at the end of 2018, there was a tweet from the Wisden account Twitter account that said, um, "James Foster, arguably one of the best wicket keepers in the world, retires." And Harsha Bogley replied with his. Ten billion followers just replied in the world question mark and loads of Indian fans commented saying oh what about Doney, what about Donny but as a pure gloveman, James Foster really was right up there and oh he's kind of like kind of like is um like like Ben Fokes and whenever you big up his keeping you almost doing down his batting but at first class level he was a wonderful batsman as well
4: he became a much better batsman he was a much better batsman later in his career than when he played Test cricket as well um, if he was still playing Test cricket at the age of 30 I think he'd have been a really handy batsman not a prolific batsman but a more than handy batsman
2: Yeah he was a resourceful player same with Chris Reid I'm talking about with the bat and neither of them had a classical technique the reason why England went with Garant Jones around that era is because Jones looked like a batsman he didn't necessarily deliver the runs to back that up but he looked like a player technically he looked like a a batsman whereas Chris Reid was idiosyncratic James Foster had a had his own technique, his own way of doing things as well. Um, and Foster also kind of crept up on you as well a little bit. You know, he, he was not a, a child star as such. Um, and he was fast-tracked into that side, surprisingly, for that tour in 2002-03 down, down in Australia. A very uneven side, that. You know, Richard Dawson was bowling spin in that side. There was a lot of injuries as well. And Foster, he was given a one hell of a task, really, to try and repel that Australian side from number seven or eight in the order without that much first-class cricket behind him. Um, I think he would have been, as we, as we can all agree, an outstanding keeper. I don't think he would have ever been an outstanding keeper batsman, personally. Um, but it's interesting that we all have him in our side, and perhaps that just goes to show how little we know about reserve wicket keepers around the world. The thing is, with <laughs> Australia, who obviously had Healy forever... You know Gilchrist was their reserve keeper, so 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 we have to eliminate the Australian story. I actually looked at a cricketer called Darren Berry, who they all say is the greatest gloveman in Australian history, and he never played a test- a test match actually, but he he's often cited as the best gloveman in in Australian cricket um and he's now a coach Did as you well play
0: similar similar errors yeah yeah he yeah, he was, as, um, he, was he was a
2: keeper in the early nineties but with with Healy having sewn it all up. And he and he couldn't bat, you see, Darren Berry. He averaged twenty twenty one in first class cricket. I looked it up earlier. Um but yeah, it, it goes to show we, we don't know too much about our reserve keepers around the world, do we? Uh, if or maybe maybe Foster yeah. is, is the preeminent one for this, this task and we've got it right after all, I don't know.
0: Won't dwell on him for too long considering you all picked him. So on to the bowlers. This team, let's be honest, is basically the Shane Bond eleven. Um so Let's, let's, let's all agree that we picked him. Yep. Um, Simon Jones, is another one that featured in... Not actually. Phil, you didn't pick Simon Jones. Um, do you want to explain why? Who are, the, who are the people that you thought were more important to include than Simon Jones?
2: Well, I picked... Um, as my other opening bowler, I picked Farney de Villiers, uh, who was a stunningly successful bowler in the early 90s. Um, he was a kind of... An early Sean Pollock. Uh, delivered one of the great spells... Crickinfo rated it fourth in the list of all-time spells um, to win the Sydney Test match. Australia were chasing, I think, 111, and de Villiers bowled them out six for 40-odd. He took five, five furs in 18 Test matches, but he came to the side in well into his 30s, another of these South African stories, turn of the decade. Um, and I think he was done with, with international cricket by 1994 or five, 1995, because he played in England in 94 the Devon-Malcolm test match and so on. Um, Famously hit Malcolm on the head. He was the the man responsible, supposedly, for Malcolm's nine for 50-odd. Anyway, he was an outstanding, um, sharp swing bowler. Uh, And if we've got Shane Bond running in from one end on one leg, then I don't really want Simon Jones running in from the other also on one leg. I want someone who's going to get through 30 overs a day and do it, and you can trust him. And so, so finally, the Villiers gets the nod for me.
0: I think you could pick all three of those pace bowlers and just have a another spinner
4: that, that's what i went for i went bon de Villiers simon jones uh other ones that came to mind damian fleming 75 wickets at 26 in 20 tests so he just makes the cut uh and another one who just makes the cut in terms of when he last played carl abbott uh 39 wickets at 23 in 11 tests we've seen, we've seen what he seen what you can do in county cricket over the last couple of years for hampshire i mean he's a, he's a incredibly good bowler didn't feel quite right to pick him in the side just for a, I'm not even really quite sure why perhaps it's because he's still young enough to be playing test cricket and isn't um so I, I just overlooked him in favor of yeah De Villiers, Bond um and Jones and just very quickly on Bond I mean we all had him obviously but his record is is genuinely extraordinary I mean, 87 wickets at 22 that strike rate of 38.7 only two bowlers in the history of the game have better than that and they both played the 19th century I mean he was freakishly good for the for the time that his body would let him let him play
1: yeah I, I don't I guess I don't really have any huge qualms with 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 Farney de Villiers. uh I I mean again picking not based on proper proper team combinations I went with Sean Tate that's my third seamer um uh only only two tests and in a way he's, he's not even particularly unfulfilled I guess because with with that action and I guess the the sort of lack of actually was never like he was going to play that much Test cricket, but I just wonder what his record would have looked like if he had managed to get through thirty, thirty-five Tests. Like the, uh, like the just 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 the highlights reel would be would be worth it alone, if not for the uh, what the overall record would be. I mean, the probably the, the fastest bowler there has maybe ever been. Um, so yeah, that that's that's why he got the nod in my team. I can see how you you if you were actually picking a team, you would probably pick Farney's videos over over Sean Tate. But that's a uh, that's why him. The, the other I considered that we've not mentioned is, uh, is Chris yeah. Tremlett, who I guess has a, had a, a, a huge impact for England in a short space of time, um, uh, and his body again wouldn't let him play as much Test cricket as his, as his talent deserved.
0: Quickly before we get to the spinners, um, somebody we talked a lot about on a pod about a month or, so, month or so ago, Dean Headley. He was he had a brilliant record for England. Um, in a very short period of time and I remember you guys on that episode saying that he is somebody who, he's someone who is one of the great what ifs what if he stayed fit and uh, continued for a few years on
4: well quite a few of the names that we discussed cropped up again whilst doing this Graham Onions is another one um, but I think with this side we are not short of quality seamers and Bond, Jones and De Villiers were the three of those I think were a cut above um, Headley and probably Onions too
0: fair enough um, on to the spin department Phil, you went Simon Harmer.
2: Yeah, I mean, it speaks for itself, I think, what he's done uh, in English county cricket um, on pitches that aren't really meant to be particularly conducive to what he does. Um, he's the most dominant figure in county cricket over the last three years. He bowled well. I don't have his figures in front of me, but I think he bowled, he bowled in five test matches, took 20-odd wickets, did okay for South Africa before making that decision to jack it all in and head over to England. Um, yeah, yeah. Big man, huge fingers, spins it miles, um, attacking off-spin bowler. Uh, and I think he would have he would have been a player to hang your hat on for South
4: Africa for a number of years if he'd hung around. Yeah, I think it's hard hard to argue with, with that, albeit I'm going to, because I didn't actually have him in my side. Um, again, similar to Carl Abbott, I guess, just just didn't... When we're looking at some of these names who have, of the past, it didn't feel quite right for me to have Harmer in there. But I agree, he's a hard picked a dispute I went with uh, Colin Funky Miller who took 69 wickets at 26 and 18 tests um, he was just he was a fascinating character as well a seamer for most of his career then then switched to spin or com- a combination of uh, se- a seam and spin later in his career did phenomenally well in Sheffield Shield cricket and did very well in, in test cricket when when called upon as well um, and another big character so I assume Ben's got him in his 11 Ben?
1: No, I, I actually went for a, for a Jantha Mendis. Did you? Um yeah. who yeah, he's he's again not not a what if in terms of a uh, like you can see why he didn't play as as many tests as as his uh, his record sort of suggests he might because he got he's a, a mystery spinner, got uh got worked out to some extent. People, players, people figured out they could maybe play him as sort of a medium pacer rather than as a spinner because he wasn't turning it miles, but it was kind of the forerunner to the to the age of mystery spin we then soon Entered into and had that. There was a, a brilliant series that Sri Lanka, a test series that Sri Lanka played against India when Brenda Sewag played maybe his best test innings, at, at double hundred where he scored sixty percent of of India's runs, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, just 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 for that for that impact and for the, the fact that there was for a long time before him not not a bowler really like that made me pick Ajanta Mendes, I guess. Another spinner I considered was a uh, was Adil Rashid actually, uh, who has uh it's been. It's been just over two years. It hasn't been just over two years, has it? So I guess he doesn't, but and he's also sort of not quite retired from Test cricket. Um, but fourth best strike rate of any English spinner since the uh, since the Second World War made me think that he's someone we hadn't really seen the best of, despite there obviously being some some amazing moments of One Day cricket and some and some special moments in a Test shirt, I guess. Um, but yeah, for Simon Harmer, I had him in originally, but I also think Do he's you. probably going to play another Test what at you some joking? point. I mean, I think I. But well, I think it, it, at least it's not outside the realm of possibility that he'll play one either for England or for South Africa. I mean, it's uh, he could he could well just choose to switch back at the end of his career if, if South Africa needs someone for a couple of tests and the Essex thing is is running its course, or he might fulfil the residency criteria in England
0: and then play. He's for still eligible for selection binning. though, so that's kind of irrelevant. Well,
1: it isn't. It isn't. I guess if. Uh, yes right, right now he does fulfill the criteria but we can still take into account the fact that he might at some point or not i guess um i wouldn't have huge qualms with him but that was probably what
0: tilted me on balance too i think there's more chance of him playing for england than end. south africa
1: fine but mm-hmm. there's still so a chance of playing for england in my opinion so
0: either way um i think harmer makes our side off the balance of what you guys are saying so we have an 11
4: yeah i'm i'm com- We have an 11
0: of Kirsten, Jakes, Law, Cambly, Ryder, Moody, Foster, Harmer, Bond, Jones and De It's a good team. That that team would do pretty well. Um, Moving on, in these strange times, keeping fit and strong is harder than usual. Um, Apart from the one bit of outdoor exercise that you're permitted by the government to do each day, it's not that obvious how to stay in tip-top condition. Earlier today, I spoke to former Middlesex, Surrey, Worcestershire and England Lions wicketkeeper Ben Scott, who now works for Kinetic Cricket, about how to keep fit at home. So first off, Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the show, especially uh, in the the strange times that we're in at the moment. Um, So first off, do you want to explain a little bit about Kinetic Cricket and the work that you do with them? Uh, Yeah, absolutely.
5: So um, it it kind of started, I'll give you my life story now, it kind of started... um, about a year and a half ago, so I finished playing professional cricket uh, at the end of 2012, and I immersed myself in the city. Uh, I set up my personal. I qualified as a PT years into my cricket career because um, that's what I kind of knew I wanted to get into. So when that when that finished, I, I dived straight into the city. I, I was really fortunate. I um, I bumped into an old friend of mine who was setting up a sports conditioning gym right in right in the centre of town. So um, it literally couldn't have worked out any better. So he he gave me the opportunity to set my business up there. So I started with the personal training and uh, set up quite a solid client base, had a nice uh, set of clients, started messing around with some online training. And I I was running fitness retreats to Ibiza, believe it or not, of all places. And um, and then, yeah, the the time kind of came around where I had a bit of free time and started to de- think about something to develop. Now, obviously with the online training thing, a lot of trainers are doing that at the moment. It's, it's becoming, an, especially at this very moment in time, everyone's trying to jump on that. But about a year and a half ago, I thought to myself, I needed to do something different. I needed to have a niche. I couldn't just jump into the kind of cesspool of all the other trainers that were trying to give this a go. Um, so it just made perfect sense to kind of come back to my roots with, with cricket. And just marry up the two. So start taking personal training, online training, and then marrying that up with uh, all of the stuff that people can do to get fit, healthy, and strong to play cricket.
0: Do you come up with training regimes particularly for cricketers then?
5: Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what that's exactly what kinetic cricket is. So it's um, uh, obviously I've I've gone through about fifteen pre seasons worth of training, and you know played played for over a 1st class games, and and so on and so forth. So I've I've had quite a lot of experience with training specifically for cricket and then again if you marry that up with just the the secular fitness industry and and what it's like to uh, to train people that aren't necessarily high performing athletes it just it, it, it just seemed to make a lot of sense that there was something that i could give to people that were either really aspiring to be Proper cricket, you know, professional cricketers, or guys that were just enjoying playing club cricket, or some youngsters that need that athletic development as well to to progress.
0: Um. So obviously, at the moment, it's quite hard to stay in tip tip top physical condition. So like, obviously, everyone's allowed to go out the house once a day for a bit of outdoor exercise. So I can get my running each day. But if I'm trying to get stronger inside with very minimal equipment, you know, obviously can't go to the gym anymore. So like, what kind of advice would you give to to club cricketers who, who can't go to the gym anymore
5: yeah so uh, it, it is difficult you're absolutely right it, it does make it a bit harder if you can't load up the muscles if you can't get enough weight to go through them but there's lots of different ways to increase the resistance Uh, it's not just about adding lots and lots of weights. And I try to encourage people to actually uh, work on the movement patterns properly. And there's other ways of adding resistance without it actually having to be weight. So one of the things that people can do is actually just slow down the movements that they're making. So if you are squatting, and even if you're doing a bodyweight squat, you can increase the time under intention by slowing down uh, the movement. So if it takes you let's say you're doing a normal bodyweight squat and you just sort of drop down and then come back up again nice and quickly, try taking 3 5 even up to 10 seconds to actually go down. And then you can almost do the same thing on the way up. So if you if you took 5 seconds to come on the way up, um, you'd certainly see that after a couple of reps that's sufficiently adding enough resistance to increase the strength so um so yeah, that, that's one way. And then obviously there's there's messing around with your angles. So if you're doing press-ups, you can mess around with the angles to make things a bit harder as well. You can bring your feet off the ground. So if you put your feet on the sofa and you've got your hands on the floor, you're obviously increasing the weight there as well. So there's there's a handful of things that people can do to, to increase their strength whilst they're training at home, yeah.
0: That's really encouraging. I hadn't realised that just by going down slower, like I'm, I'm no fitness expert at all, uh, I hadn't, hadn't realised that just by going slower... Uh, on the way up and down. So that, will that work with a press-up as well? Oh, absolutely. Gosh,
5: especially any, any of the movements you look to make, if you slow them down, um, it will be much, much harder to actually achieve. And also it gives you the opportunity to to feel the movement a lot better. It gives you the opportunity to actually think about the movement that you're making because that's one of the problems mm. that a lot of people ha- are, have and will certainly have at the moment when it comes to training from home is it, it's all very well going online and getting a generic... YouTube video or watching a video um, somewhere else on, on Instagram or something but it's actually understanding how to make the movement properly and if you slow it down then you do stand a better chance of understanding what your body's capable of.
0: During your cricketing career did you have this similar amount of emphasis on fitness and keeping fit and strong during it or was that something that came towards the end of your career or after your career?
5: Uh, no, it was it was definitely during my career. It was right right from the start. Um, I mean, I was I was never in amazing shape as a youngster. Um, and then it was actually my uh, work experience. I don't know if you remember like work experience when you're about 14 or 15, something like that. Um, and my, my mum and dad were working. So they were like, right, no, you've got to figure out your own way to get there. So I would cycle from, Twickenham where I live to Chesington, um, uh, which was a decent cycle and it would be a, a fair whack in the morning and then in the evening I did that every day for two weeks and come the, come the other side of that I actually noticed a significant difference in how I was feeling and how much fitter I was and it had an impact on my cricket uh, and stuff so from that moment on I really started to, to get interested and then whilst I was playing cricket, it uh, it became real. I mean, I, I was a slow starter at the beginning of the seasons, right? So I found it difficult. I'm only a little guy, so I found it difficult to get big strides in. And in early season, uh, on green wickets, I was getting LBW, nicking off left, right and centre. So I always struggled with those pre-season um, games and stuff. So what I did do was try to make sure that when I was wicket-keeping, I was of energy i was belting it around i was winning all of the fitness um sort of testing competition the bleep tests and, and all this kind of stuff i tried to make sure that i was if not at the top certainly as, as high up as i could get to just give me that extra chance of potentially starting in the season does that make sense so yeah, yeah. so you know i i that was certainly something that was within my control because one of the things we always talk about is controlling the controllables and making sure that I was as fit as a fiddle was certainly something I could control. So I, I really enjoyed it. I loved, I loved training whilst I was playing, and then it just became a natural progression. I started learning more whilst I was qualifying uh, during my career, and then, and then that was it. As soon as, as soon as the reins were taken off me and my life started uh, in the real world, I, I jumped straight in.
0: What, uh, one, one of my old coaches used to say, a fitter cricketer is a better cricketer. I, I presume you definitely subscribe to that idea as well.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think fit, fitness is so vital for loads of reasons, okay? Now, people always think of fitness speed and endurance as getting from A to B uh, either as quickly as possible or, you know, uh, just being being able to run fast, you know. That people often consider that to be fitness. But we talk about speed, you think how fast you can move your arm is is also part of being fit. How stable you can plant your foot is, is, is an element of being fit. Now, obviously, the better you are at those particular movements, there's no doubt that that leads into your skill. And there's no doubt that that leads to scoring runs and taking wickets. You know, mm. so, um, so even at that kind of granular level, fitness is really, really important. The other reason uh, that I I think that fitness is important is because it helps prevent injuries. Not just prevent injuries, but gives you the understanding of how to come back from injuries. Because, look, I mean, injuries are... Sometimes they're unavoidable. But if you do pick something up and you do your rest appropriately, it's then about understanding how to rehab. And that falls straight under the kind of guise of, of being fit and understanding your body a lot more.
0: So that's all really interesting stuff. So if people... Uh, like what they hear and want to get involved and follow your stuff what's the best way for them to get in touch with you and follow the work that you do um so you pop onto the
5: website so uh www.kineticcricket.com um yeah and you can see some of the uh, workouts that i've got on there i i try and um make sure that i'm covering the strength i'm covering movement as well and, uh, and one of obviously the big things that cricketers need is agility, which which forms a big part of, of what I try and, and get out there. So, so yeah, pop, pop yourself on the uh, on the website and have a look at some of the stuff. I do have an Instagram page as well. I'm not amazing on Instagram. I'm not amazing on uh, social media. I find it really uh, difficult to get on board with it. But I'm certainly uh, trying to get a bit better now.
0: Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ben. Really appreciated it. Moving on. Uh, time for this week's Saturday Night Stat. Um <laughs> This one didn't get the traction that I was expecting, unfortunately. Uh, The stat was (laughs) there were two tied first-class matches in the space of three weeks in April and May 2003. Andy Flower played in the first one and his brother Grant played in the second one. Considering there have only been 65 first-class games ever, I personally think that's an extraordinary fact. Um, The first tie was a contrived finish in a county championship game between Warwickshire and Essex. Basically a one, in, one innings game With Essex declaring on 66 for none In their first innings And Warwickshire forfeiting their second innings And then, and the second game was um, A classic Zimbabwe tied with Worcestershire In a warm-up game For their series against England A couple of weeks later Kabir Ali, the star of the day there Taking a Fifer for um, To tie the game for Worcestershire
2: um, <laughs> As Joe rightly said Those stats left us speechless On Saturday night So So speechless that we didn't bother Paying any attention to it Until about Tuesday afternoon but I no, keep them coming in, yes, and that is, that is truly uh, a stonker, an absolute stonker.
0: Don't worry, I'm, I'm not taking it personally, don't worry at all. Just keep them um, coming. Yeah, last week we talked about unlikely days in the sun for players in their secondary discipline. Joe, you talked about Ian Bell's game-changing four for 4 and you actually spoke to Bell about it <laughs> this week, and about how he's, how, he, how he's doing, basically, just a check-up on Ian Bell. Did you get a sense of, before I played the interview, did you get a sense of immense pride from Ian Bell? I did,
4: actually. Often you would speak to cricketers about something you think is amazing and they can't remember doing it, which is always a bit deflating. Um, but in this instance, he was, I think he, well, you can judge for yourself, but I think he was quite happy to talk about it. And Jonathan Trott's seven for as well, which we'll come on to.
0: Yeah, what What struck me from that interview was just how clearly he remembered all the details from both of those games and considering they <laughs> were quite a long time ago, and considering he played in far more important matches, I thought that's quite impressive. So, here's that interview.
4: So, Ian, it perhaps sums up where we all are, all are at the moment, that a uh, video of you creaming a toilet roll through mid-off almost broke the internet. Uh, how are you and the family holding up?
3: <laughs> we're okay, we're good. It's, like you said, it's, um, it's tough for everyone, and hopefully everyone's uh, all okay and safe, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it's it's fun things to do, especially two young kids at home as well. Um, you know, running around. Uh, luckily, um, my wife can tell she's a school teacher and making sure the work's all right. I'm on uh, activities and sports, so uh, I probably get the best end of the, the deal there. But um, yeah, it's good as I like said. Same with everyone. It's trying to keep the kids entertained and and also. Tr- try and find, crack your way through all of this and have a smile on your face.
4: I mean, it was your son who's full-toss got the treatment, uh, wasn't it? <laughs> I thought he got his revenge in a follow-up video. There's a nice high elbow there, reminiscent of his of his it, dad. It looks yeah, like you've yeah. been teaching him well.
3: Oh, no, he doesn't listen to me. Doesn't I promise he you, like, he literally has no interest in what I have to say to him about cricket. <laughs> I mean, he's, um, I mean, again, he's, uh, um, he loves his football, he loves his cricket, he gets into, like, just... Cracks on. He loves all his sports. So, but um, yeah, he doesn't. Uh, he'll listen to all the other coaches. Though, when he goes to some like, like in the summer last year and little clinics and coaching and stuff like that, but he has no interest in listening to his dad.
4: <laughs> uh, obviously, uh, a lot of frustrated people across the country stuck at home right now. Not least cricketers who have been preparing to start the season in a couple of weeks and will now be wondering if there'll be any kind of season at all. Uh, it must be particularly frustrating for you given that you missed the entire of last season as well with, with injury.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's seriously frustrating. Um, you know, you feel that, like you said, for everyone as well, whether it's professionally or, you know, club cricket as well. It's um, yeah, it's tough to see, especially when the weather is like it is at the moment and the sun's out. And, yeah, it's particularly frustrating. Um, and just hope that we can somehow get some cricket going at some point in the summer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, from a personal point of view, it's frustrating, like I said, to be injured all last year and then everything's fully fit and you feel great, ready to go. And um, and obviously with this, but um, yeah, hopefully as well, from, I suppose from a professional point of view, we can get out there and um, whatever format it is, get out there and put some cricket on for the public to watch as well, which would be... Uh, Whether it's behind closed doors and Sky put it on, or or whatever happens, uh, try and get some cricket out there and um, get some smiles back on some faces.
4: I was reading Alistair Cook uh, the other day uh, saying that the county championship might have to make way this summer for the more profitable um, tournaments, Um, that in these circumstances we just have to look at the the bigger picture. Do you think that's a a fair enough point of view at this point?
3: Yeah, I I think that's pretty realistic, to be honest with you again. Financially, is going to be the question, I suppose, for the counties this year and T20, the 100. The, these were all, the, 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 I suppose, the money machines of county cricket and domestic cricket. So um, you, you, and you fully understand that they have to be prioritised. Um, we know that obviously there's a lot of um, you know, massive cricket fans out there who love their Red Bull cricket, love four-day cricket, and you'd like to think we can get some of that as well. But I fully understand why the, the other tournaments would be prioritised at the moment if we, if we do play any cricket this summer. Um but um yeah, I mean they're they're big decisions to make, but I, I fully understand them and um I suppose everyone everyone does really, really I said for me really the most important thing is to try and get some cricket this summer. Um, you know, and, and try and get some on T V that, you know, if they are behind closed doors or whatever the situation is that needs to some entertainment for everyone um yeah, this season.
4: Also in slight on a slightly uh, lighter mood, uh on the podcast we've been doing this thing where we look at players who had unexpected performances in their weaker suit so like Jack Leach getting 92 in a test match or Michael Clark taking 6 for 9 yeah. uh, now I know you bowled some handy seam in your youth but we picked oh, out a handy. scorecard it's, it's polite, it's polite though, it? <laughs> <laughs> it surprised us a bit right so your co- career best figures of 4 for 4 at Lords yeah. in 2004 yeah. you took yeah. 4 of the last 5 wickets to fall including yeah. Lance Klusner for a golden duck that twice you did you did you got you... MLBW in the second innings as yeah. well do
3: you, so you remember all this vague, What happened? Vague, vaguely, vaguely remember it. It must have been a flat wicket as well because Nick Knight got a triple hundred. I think I got a hundred as well. We beat. It was one of those. Um, oh, like I suppose it happens in England. It doesn't happen near us in the world. But I remember us. Uh, bowling first at Lords, and it was very overcast, like it can be at Lords. And the ball went all over the place. We bowled Middlesex out for not many. Then the sun came out for a day and a half, and we batted. Nick Knight got a triple hundred. I think I think I got a hundred. You did, yeah. And we got we got absolute millions. And then as we declared, all the clouds rolled in again, and it started to go around all over the shop again. So I I, I had a little bit of help, I suppose, with the overhead conditions at Lords, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I was I was horrible to face. To be honest with you, I, I would not. I'd have got myself out so much. Um, <laughs> we were talking kind of real... bit Darren Stevens, but a bit bit less skillful. Yeah, well, I, I feel for Darren Stevens if you mention me in that category. <laughs> he's been doing it for a while, but um, yeah, it wasn't particularly nice. But I think I might even have been on two hat tricks like that in the, in that 4 and four. They were both um, both I was both on a hat trick twice. Um, but um, yeah, it was again a memorable game. I'm like I said. A, Lords has changed so much over the, the last couple of years actually. It used to be one of those uh, used the pencil in and again a bit like going to Taunton and it was one of the flattest wickets you could absolutely imagine domestic in a domestic game. It's a little bit harder these days with Tim Murta running up the hill, but um um yeah, that was uh, that was a good game. It's a good good one to be part of.
4: Another score scorecard we picked out from a game you were involved in, which we couldn't quite believe. A year earlier, in two thousand three, against Kent at Canterbury, Jonathan Trott. 11.1 yeah. one overs, two Maidens, seven for 39. In a Kent total of 594. <laughs> what what happened That's there the then?
3: But Blake, I don't know who was captain in that game. I want to find out. He didn't get him on early enough by the sounds of it. I think um, Ed Smith got a double hundred in that one as he well. He did,
4: yeah. I guess uh, it would have been Nick Knight captaining, wouldn't it, at that stage? Nah, right,
3: that says it all, I reckon. That says it all. <laughs> like, he left a free hit in one of the games I played in when they first came in. <laughs> so it says it all. But, um, yeah, and I, I remember that. I remember Trotty just coming in and bowing an absolute... Um, hand grenades really he was unplayable um, but then I think actually Mark Eelan might have bowled us out second innings as well so um, I don't know what was happening with the rest of the bowlers at the time but I do remember Troy doing that it was um, I think it was like a new ball or something like, we were out there for a long time
4: Brilliant well, I'm glad you remembered both of those because I wasn't wasn't sure you would um, yeah. But anyway, so what, what happened with your bowling Was it you had a few back problems was that what caused you to stop bowling or? Uh,
3: I did I did get a stress fracture one year um, so it did hamper I would like to say I blame it all on that but it uh, it wasn't really, I suppose, I suppose the bowling, it Really, I used to bowl a lot for Warwickshire, um, but then obviously when I started playing for England, obviously I'd bowl less and, less and less and less in those games, but then when I'd go back and play your three, four games for Warwickshire at the time, obviously like I said that at that time we'd have Trotty, we actually signed Darren Maddy as well from Leicester, so I suppose when I came back for a short period of time, you know, there were other people doing the role that I was doing before when I was playing week in, week out. And I, probably, I suppose over time, it just got, it just ended up getting less and less. And every then when I did come on and ball, I got absolutely panned. So, um, <laughs> it just eventually, um, yeah, eventually just uh, went out the window and then I probably got a bit too old to, to, to be doing that. That's what amazes me. Darren Stevens can still do it um, at his age. Batting at, batting, let alone is, is hard enough.
4: Well, that's lovely stuff, Ian. Thanks so much for um, taking a trip down memory lane there um, and really appreciate your time and hope your family stays, stays safe and well.
3: Brilliant. Thanks so much. Cheers.
0: There is a new Wiz and Cricket Monthly out today. There's a, remember, there's a special deal that we have, which is get your first three issues digitally for just £2.99 by going to bit.ly, that's spelled L-Y slash W-C-M special. Um, we talked a, about it a bit last week, Joe, what can we expect from this weird issue, as you guys were saying last year, or at least weird to put together?
4: Weird to put together. um, We're really happy with it. Um, The cover feature is Phil's uh, interview with Mark Woods, which I think we've discussed on the podcast before. But he went up to Ashington to effectively get a a guided tour of Ashington from England's possibly fastest ever bowler and certainly one of their most popular Uh, characters over the years Um, that's a brilliant interview by Phil Um, we also Saj Sadiq of Pack Passion speaks to Shahid Afridi about his Thriller Minute career and the highs and lows of that one Um, we've also got an interview with Graham Thorpe done by John Stern uh, who kind of talks about the ups and downs of his own England career and how that's uh, influenced his kind of coaching philosophy as England's batting coach these days Phil what else have we got in there? Remind me well it's the strangest issue we've ever done for obvious reasons um and
2: for me the standout piece is a is a poetic column really from Andrew Miller um our new columnist obviously his day job is with Crick Info he he now takes a a monthly page in our magazine and he he tries to to meditate upon the absence of cricket and 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 how we cope psychologically the 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 aesthetic loss as well of the game um and, and how, we, how we kind of recalibrate how we think about the game as well and how valuable it is to, to our lives and to our routines um, and finishes with the rather cheeky uh, proposition surely it's better um, to have the 100 than to have the none and asks the question about, about what, this, this, what this season if indeed there is going to be any season what it will look like uh, down the pipe um, so there 's sub 's substance uh, sorry, there is substance there alongside the poeticism I think that 's a beautiful piece of work and i 'd say there there's there 's more of that in there as well. It was a very strange issue because three or four days out from print uh, the landscape looked very different to that which uh, which it looked like when we when we finally got to press that button and we had to change the tone and style of a number of pieces right at the death to to reflect the times that we live in um all things considered, I think we played a blinder.
0: There we have it. Um, last but not least, we're running a series on wisdom.com about the players that got our writers hooked on the game. If there's a standout player that helped you fall in love with the game, send them in to us on Twitter or at editorial at com. We'd love to hear uh, from you about those players who got you hooked on the game. I think that'll do for today's show, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, guys. Um, and as ever... If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends and if you're feeling extra kind, leave us a five-star review on the podcast app. Cheers.
1: Podcast Network.